0: seated. We're going to jump in today. We're starting a new series here at Mosaic called Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. And so um, during this series, we're going to discuss four different aspects of grace, four different ones. Today, we're going to talk about grace for me, right? Because I don't know about you, but I need grace, right? And so it starts with us. And then next week, we'll talk about grace for you. And then we'll talk about grace for them, and then the final week, we'd talk about grace for all. But before we begin, just some opening thoughts as we get into this series. And this isn't, <clears throat> if, you, if you maybe hear that, or you see that title and you're like, oh, we're going to talk about grace again, or oh, amazing grace, I've heard that song a trillion times. Um, and maybe for you, just the, the wonder and the awe of God's grace has worn off a little bit. Have you ever been there? When it's like maybe the things that once you know filled you with awe and filled you with wonder in life just don't anymore. But in God's family, we can never let God's grace get old or become complacent with it. We cannot let it happen. We have to fight, we have to you know kick, scratch, claw, do whatever we have to do to make sure that God's grace stays amazing. It can never get old, it can never get mundane we can't let it. It's not an option because this is the driving factor of our lives. Grace changes people. Grace rewrites futures. Maybe you're here today and you're like, Joe, my life is off the rails and I need grace to rewrite my future because if I stay on the same track that I'm on right now, it's not going to be good. It gives us a fresh start. His grace has to stay amazing to us, or else we'll get off course. We do. Maybe it's time for you to experience God's grace for the first time. So wherever you're at, whatever chair you're in today, I just want you to know that you can't understand the Christian life at all unless you understand grace. At Mosaic, we want to create a a movement of Christ followers committed to showing and receiving unexpected, excessive, and lavish amounts of grace. Why? Because that's what Christ did for you and me. And so wherever you're at, my prayer is that you experience God's grace in an amazing way over the next few weeks. Our view of God's grace, our view of God can never get too big. It can't, because just when we think we've gone too far, just because just when we think that we're unforgivable, God's grace sweeps in and proves us wrong. You maybe have heard me uh, say here at Mosaic before, or maybe you're new and you haven't heard this, but I like to say that every church should be made up of thirds. Every church should be made up of thirds. And here at Mosaic, we want to be a a three-chair church. And just just so, just imagine that this is the table, and I'm the dude with the food, and there's three chairs around the table. And one chair, it's representing an unbeliever, right? This is the first chair, the unbeliever. And how many of you know that if we don't have unbelievers in the building hearing about the amazing grace of God, we're doing something wrong? The church of Jesus Christ is the only establishment, the only organization on the face of the planet that is, was created for, and it's, and its main mission has to do with those that aren't yet in it. Right? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so, as a church... You know, this this should make up a big part of our crowd because we're bringing and we're inviting and we're going out into the highways and the byways and compelling those who are lost to come in. And then the second chair is the new believer. These are those that just met Christ maybe recently and they're growing in their faith, right? And then the third chair is the mature believer. And hopefully the mature believers are helping the other people move around the table and they're turning around, and they're investing, and they're inviting, and they're doing everything they can to see that other people experience the same grace that they've experienced. Sometimes in church world, we get a little backwards, and here in the mature believer seat, it has more to do with what you know than how much you're obeying. But here's the deal. Man, Jesus called us to go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations, make disciples, teach them to to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. And so really, if we're mature, we're helping this unbeliever chair stay full and we're teaching these new believers how to follow Christ. And not only that, but we're continuing to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about amazing grace, this is just what we do. As a pastor over the years, you know, when we've done series like these and, and some people might say, man, Joe, this is kind of simple. This is kind of basic. And I just want to say, hey, there is nothing deeper. There is nothing better than the grace of God. And so when we talk about the grace and how big it is and how about the grace of God and how big it is and how much of effect it can have in our church and how it needs to be the guiding force in our church, there's nothing deeper than we could ever talk about. Why? Because Paul said to, to, in one of his letters, man, I'm gonna pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you can understand how wide and how long and how deep and how wide God's love is for you. There's nothing deeper. There's nothing deeper. And so I just want to encourage you as we go on this journey over the next four weeks that no matter what chair you find yourself in, there's room to grow. There's room to say, God, how do you want to flesh this out in my life? What do you want to do in my life over the next few weeks when it comes to your amazing grace? Do you remember a time, the first time when you had received grace and you didn't deserve it? Do you remember? Just think about that. When was the first time that, man, I got totally off the hook? totally off the hook. Maybe you were late paying a bill, and your landlord gave you grace. Maybe you brought your homework assignment late to school, and your teacher gave you grace, and that feeling of that burden just lifting off your shoulders, and like, oh my goodness, I can't thank you enough. When I was younger, I, see, I remember mine, or one, one of many, because I've messed up a lot, but I remember one of, one of my first ones, in my early days, when I first got a car, I had this big, long Chevy station wagon. It was awesome. It was the family car that got handed down to me. And this thing could seat 10 people, because in the back, the seats would kind of fold out to the side. So four in the back, three in the middle, three in the front. You kids these days don't, don't know what it's like to sit three in the front. But it, it, it's a journey. And so... It had a seven point something liter V8. This thing was smooth. It had all the bells and whistles. And so I didn't care, even though some friends of school were driving in nicer cars and, and, you know, whatever, I didn't care. I had wheels. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Kids these days are like, no, mom, dad, I want this, this, and this. Well, hey, I just had wheels and that was good enough for me. And so I'm cruising in my my big old huge V8, Chevy Caprice Classic. And how many of you know those things just float and you never you don't feel like you're going as fast as you are, right? And so shortly after I got my license, which I got on my 16th birthday, and I passed the first time, and back in the day, there were no restrictions. Like I could have 10 people in my car on that day one. It, it was just different back then, right? And so shortly after that, I was just cruising, rocking out to some music. You know, when you're a teenager, you turn it up loud and your eardrums are bleeding and, um, and so still do. And, and so I'm just like, and lo and behold, I get pulled over doing 47 and a 30. And so as a 16 year old kid, I'm paying like a $140 ticket and I, my soul is just crushed. Lo and behold, I go the next like three or four years of my life and I got pulled over like five times and every single time I got a ticket. I never got grace, every single time. And I always had a good excuse. You know, one time I was driving a friend's car and literally the speedometer was broken, it didn't work. And I got pulled over on the highway, I was just keeping up with traffic and I'm like, why me? You had to pick the guy with the broken speedometer. And that was like the first ticket that I was like, I seriously don't know if I could pay this. I was doing like 13 over, and because I was in, in some certain county, the ticket was like 380 some dollars And as a, as a young, I think I was 18 at the time, young college student, and I'm like, I'm going to be broke for the rest of my life, right? You know, another time I got pulled over, I was the only car on the road doing 10 over at 3 in the morning. And I'm like, seriously? And got a ticket, no grace. And so the day finally came when I got pulled over and I'm like, here we go again. I'm going to lose my license or something. And the guy gave me a warning and it was like the heavens opened (laughs) and a dove descended on my car. No, it didn't. And it was just like the best feeling in the world. I'm like, I've never experienced this before. Like all of my friends talk about getting a warning and getting off the hook. And I had friends that would get pulled over doing like 25 or 30 over and miraculously they get warnings. I'm like, why can't this ever happen to me? Right? But finally it did. And and long lesson short, I learned my lesson. I haven't got a ticket in like at least the last 15 years, probably more. And God's smiling on me, right? (laughs) Does that mean I'm not still a lead foot probably not but I sure am lucky but man the first time you get grace the first time it's like man you know the price you know the cost you know the cost of your sin you know the cost of doing the wrong thing and somebody shows you grace it's such an amazing feeling isn't it and we all have bigger things bigger than a speeding ticket that have plagued us in life. Maybe our family was broken. And maybe even because of your decisions, relationships that you valued were broken and were irreparable. Maybe you think you've gone too far. You've done too much. You don't, you've You've said too many things about God that you don't think he could forgive you. Maybe you've told your friends, you've told your family members, you don't believe in him. You don't think he exists. You think he's mad at you. You think he's picking on you. Maybe you think you're you that kind of person that never gets the grace. You feel like you're just cosmically picked on and that God is just a God up in heaven and he's kind of angry and he's just looking for opportunities to get back at you. Maybe you've been surrounded by people in life that are not very good at giving grace. Maybe you grew up in a home where you never got off the hook and you even got punished when you didn't deserve it, right? Let's turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We'll start right off in verse 1 and then we're going to skip down to an amazing story. It's called the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15 might be one of the most popular chapters in the entire Bible because it has three incredible stories of God's grace. But listen to how it starts. In Luke chapter 15, 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Man, just think about that. Who was gathering around to hear Jesus? The tax collectors and the sinners. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so just picture in your head the most snooty, the most snobby kind of people that are just can't believe that Jesus would associate with such and such. And so this is the setting. And then after that, the first two parables in this chapter, one is about a lost sheep and one is about a lost coin, and those are really about people who know they're lost, right? The sheep, it just wanders off, and maybe not even on purpose, it it wandered into sin, and it it got itself stuck, it knew it needed help, it was crying out for help, and the Lord went and found the sheep, right? And many of us had that experience. Man, we didn't know, and then we heard about Christ, and man, Jesus found me. And there was the lost coin. And what did the the person who lost the coin do? Man, they turned everything over. Did whatever they had to do to find that. And why? Because that's what Jesus does when you know you're lost and you know you need a Savior. But then we come to this story of the parable. And listen, these, these Pharisees and the teachers of the law... They had this attitude. They were just miffed that Jesus would even want to be around tax collectors and sinners. They were so full of pride that they couldn't even hear Jesus' message. That they couldn't see that Jesus was real. They, They couldn't see that he was really the one that could save them. And so just right from the start, we need to get this into our heads, that pride and Jesus don't mix Pride and grace don't mix. It's like oil and water. You can't have the two in the same place because one is always going to be destroying the other. Pride destroys grace every day. Pride was the Pharisees' number one barrier to meeting Jesus. Because we see from this just from the context of this verse, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. This is God's heart, that the lost be found, that those that don't know Jesus get to know Jesus. It's who Jesus talked to, it's who Jesus ate with, it's who Jesus spent time with, and so it's for the lost. One of our greatest hurdles, though, is pride, too we don't think we need Jesus. We think we can do without him. Maybe maybe sometimes too, we we think that Jesus doesn't want to sit with us. It's like we get this mind of the Pharisees, and even though maybe we're not serving God, we know we're a sinner, we, we think like them, that Jesus wouldn't want to sit with me, that Jesus shouldn't want to sit with me because I've sinned so much. Maybe you mistake Jesus for a Pharisee. You think God doesn't want to be around someone with issues or baggage or imperfections. Even though it says right here that that's who he sat with. People like you and me. Multitudes came to Jesus to be healed. But sometimes we're so prideful that we won't even show up to church. Maybe you were invited by somebody and you're like, I don't know about that church thing. I don't know about Jesus. I don't know. I don't know about God. I don't know if he really loves me. I don't know if he's really there. And you just think, ah, I don't know. And your pride keeps you from the feet of Jesus. And so let's jump into our story, the prodigal son, Luke 15, 11 through 24. And the th- first thing that we're gonna learn through this story is that pride leads to separation. Pride leads to separation. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate so he divided his property between them can you imagine effectively what this son was saying to to his father was I wish you were dead he was so prideful he didn't care about his family he didn't care about what that did to his dad man if his dad gave him his share of the estate, remember his dad was not dead yet And how many of you know if you're retired, you're living on the the income, you're living on the estate. And so if you give half it away, it might hurt you a little bit financially. And so this son didn't care. He didn't care about his dad. He didn't care about what this request would do to his, his dad's estate or the finances or whatever. He's like, give me mine, right? And the pride created separation. So he's saying to the father, I wish you were dead. You've got you to wonder what had happened. What was the relationship like between the father and the son to lead to this point where the son would have to be like, I want out. And I know as a parent, I'm not a perfect parent, but even when I do my best to do the right thing by my kids, my kids don't always think I'm doing the right thing. And maybe that's what, that the way with you and God. Maybe God's done everything because God, God doesn't do anything imperfectly. But maybe you think, God, why didn't you show up at this point? Why didn't you show up for me at this time of my life? And you get mad at God, and you get frustrated with God, and, and then uh, lo and behold, you're turning around, and you're saying to God, I wish you weren't even here. I just want to do my life my, my life on my own. And so effectively, that's what this son was saying to his dad. Even though the father had, replied, had, had uh, provided everything for his son, the son was rebelling. Isaiah 1 through two says, listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. That's what sin does. Pride leads to separation. Number two, the second thing we see through this story of the prodigal is that separation leads to desperation. Let's read in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed So he got up and he went to his father. You see, sin is fun for a season, right? And somebody once said, though, that isolation, which is another word for separation, you're separated from the family, is the devil's playground. And so you're separated from God, you go off, you do your own thing. This particular story, he squandered everything he had, foolishly, wild living which basically just means he did whatever he wanted to whenever he wanted to and it was fun for a while and then it wasn't have you ever been there you did what you wanted to you made your own decisions and maybe you didn't go partying and drinking and you know spending all your money on prostitutes like this guy did maybe you didn't go and and just do things that are just blatantly foolish But maybe it was a slow fade and it's just like, God, you know what? I'm just gonna do what I wanna do. I'm just gonna do these things that make me happy. And after a while you find yourself and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm completely separated from God. I don't feel his presence anymore. I'm not in the Bible anymore. I'm not doing what I should be doing. I've fallen into this secret sin maybe. And it leads to a point of desperation you see, because he didn't just spend all his money. He didn't just lose his status. He didn't just lose his family. He became completely broken. He had, lost his, he had lost his money, his property, but he also lost his talents, his purpose, his opportunities, his mind, his thoughts, his hands, his body, his soul. It was all completely devastated. He was completely broken emotionally, mentally, it was a grim scene, right? Someone once said, sin takes you further than you wanted to go and makes you pay more than you, than you intended to pay. And it keeps you longer than you intended to stay, right? And so just imagine, maybe you've been there just feeling completely drained, without hope, mentally, fiscally, emotionally, rock bottom. And you might not be with the pigs per se, but you might be sitting here today completely spent. You might still have some money, but you're empty inside. Listen, it doesn't matter what you have or don't have. Eventually, we all reach a point of desperation when we don't have Christ. Why? Because separation leads to desperation. He was so desperate. And he got to a point where his pride remember that thing that caused the separation? Now was of a little consequence. Why? Because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And so he got to this place where his pride had been so beaten down by life and circumstance and sin that he was desperate for God. He was desperate for God. Psalm 51, three through four says, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. What do I hear when when I read that verse? I hear just surrender. God, I messed up. God, I screwed up. God, my life is so jacked up, and I need you, right? It's almost like you get to that point where you're like, God, I get it, I get it, what I once thought was going to be fun, what I once thought was going to help me, what I once thought I knew what I want, I get it. And so that's where he, he was. The third thing we see in this story is that desperation leads to repentance. Desperation leads to repentance because after you get to this place where your pride is gone, you're desperate, you're emotionally spent, it leads you to this place of repentance. And we see this in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, remember, he's going home. When he was a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's repentance, owning up verbally saying, God, I need you. He's confessing with his mouth. He's repenting. He's confessing. He's getting real with his father. And this is the moment we all need to come to. There's level ground at the foot of the cross where we could just come to God broken and hurting and say, I blew it. I'm sorry, right? You see, our culture and our society today wants us all to think that we're, we're all inerrantly good. You know, oh, we're all good people. Just try. Oh, there's so much good in the world. Oh, we're all just want to love each other. Oh, let's just all get along. But man, you live a little bit and, and you understand that, man, that's not true. That's not true. And even in the, the darkest, quietest moments of your life, you know that deep down inside of yourself, there's something that's broken and needs fixing. And so we all have to come to this moment where we just say, oh, God, I'm coming home and I'm going to have that hard conversation. Did you ever do that when you are as a teenager? You're going home and you knew you were going to have to fess up and tell your parents something because they could either hear it from you or they could hear it from somebody else. And you knew that they were going to hear it from somebody else, so they might as well hear it from you. Anybody ever been there? And so coming home to have that hard conversation, and we all need to come to that place with God where we have that, tough conversation with with him this realization that i need help i don't have it all together in luke five thirty one through 32 jesus said healthy people don't need a doctor sick people do i've come not to call those who think they are righteous remember that's the pride factor but those who know they're sinners and need to repent because no matter what you think, you know, there, weren't, there really weren't two groups of people in this chapter. You know, we're tempted to think there was the Pharisees and there was the sinners. And the Pharisees were the good ones and the sinners were the bad ones. But no, there's just one group of people. And when Jesus says, you know, I'm not coming to call those who think they are righteous. He's basically saying, when you have pride and when you won't repent and when you won't come clean with God, I can't help you. And sometimes they are like, oh, that that sounds kind of judgmental. That sounds kind of like, you know, tough. Well, it's called tough love. It's called tough love, and Christ is going to love you in the best way possible every single time. Every single time. And so this is the moment where the son was ready to repent, the moment he could come home. And by the way, this moment is why Jesus came and died for you and for me. And so number four. The fourth thing we see through this story is that repentance leads to transformation. This is where we're gonna, it's going to get good. We already saw the father's grace. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him. He kissed him. Immediate acceptance, immediate love shown. And then listen to what the father does in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, underline that word, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, right? So they begin to celebrate. So now we're getting to the amazing part, right? The series is called Amazing Grace. Maybe up in 10 now, you're like, man, this is a sad story. But this is where it really gets good because you see, it wasn't like, okay, He didn't come home and the dad's like, okay, now it's time for you to earn your spot back on the team again. Hey, now you need to prove yourself as a part of the family again. Hey, let's get you all cleaned up. Let's get you on the right path. And maybe in a couple years, you can start to act like one of the family again. Because remember the son was ready to come home and be like, dad, just let me be a servant. I just want to eat. But no, the father looked at him and said, boom, you're back in the family. You're my son. Let's do this, Right. I wanted you to underline that quick because that's God's plan for you, for, for you to be clean and transformed now. The Bible, there's this amazing thing called sanctification. When God sanctifies you, when you come to him, you confess, you repent, and he washes you clean, it means that a sanctification means set, being set apart to be holy. It means that you're made perfect in God's eyes. And so you're sanctified when you come to be a believer, when you put your trust in Christ, when you repent and you, you, you profess faith in him, and then you go on a journey of sanctification at the same time. And so it's this amazing process that the moment you give your life to Christ, God forgives you, he throws your sin as far as the east is from the west, you have no sin in you, and you go on a process of God refining you throughout the rest of your life, right? Right? Now, how many of you know, man, you, you give your life to Christ, and the next day, it's like, man, I still have temptation. I've still got these things. I've still got some baggage. I've still got some, some healing that needs to be done. And that's okay. But that doesn't change the fact that God loves you. He's brought you into his family. He, has, he, doesn't re, he remembers your sin no more. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Quick in right standing with God. You don't have to earn your spot back on the team. You're in the family again. And so it's not just a little transformation. It's not just like, oh, he's back at home, and but now, like, you know, we're gonna have to see how things go. No. It was complete transformation in the moment. He was clothed in the riches of the father right then. You see, the robe that that that, that his father put on him. This restored him to a position of sonship and honor, right? So he went from the gutter to a place of honor, just like that. It symbolized being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, right? This son had done nothing to deserve it. And that's what's amazing about the grace of God, because, because the robe that, that went on him, it didn't, it didn't symbolize what he had done or how good he was. It symbolized the righteousness of Christ that was given to him. The ring that was put on his finger restored him to a position of authority, right? The son was now to represent his father in his kingdom. The shoes that were put on his feet immediately restored and elevated him above servanthood. Remember, he went home to be a servant, but God said, no, you're not going to be a servant. The servants didn't wear shoes, but the sons of the family wore shoes. And so immediately his, his, his father is saying to him, no, you are my son, The celebration, it pictures reconciliation, full acceptance, and the great joy of the occasion. And so this is a great example of you and I not having to earn our salvation. It's an undeserved free gift. This is the biggest difference between Christianity and every other religion in the entire world. Christianity is the only religion that's built on grace. Every other religion on the face of the planet is is based on works, and you can summarize them in one word. It's what you do right? But Christianity following Christ is summarized in one word and it's done. It's what Christ has already done for you on the cross. He paid for your salvation. He paid for your sins. It's already been done and now it's a free gift to you. The question is, are you going to come home? Are you going to receive it? Second Corinthians 521 says, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin, right? Listen to that. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for your sin, for my sin, so that we can be made right with God through Christ. Church, newcomer, mature believer, have you forgot the links that God went to to show you grace? When you are broken, when you're lost, when you're without purpose that Jesus saw you, when you were or maybe are so full of pride that you didn't think you needed God and yet he still sees you and he loves you, he's ready for you. When he sees you coming, he's gonna run. And this message, remember I said at the beginning, is for everybody. Because you might be the lost sheep or the lost coin and you know you're lost. Well, hey, God's grace is for you. That's what he's all about. Or you meet, might be that prodigal, which I think that was really a story for the Pharisees because they didn't know they were the lost. They thought they knew it all. And they had to go through a tough experience to realize that they needed Jesus. And so wherever you are, whether you know you need him or you're full of pride and you can't see him, when he sees you coming, he's gonna run. He's not gonna make you pay. He's not gonna make you do penance. He's not gonna put you in purgatory for a while. Nothing like that. He's gonna wrap his arms around you. God's grace for you can't be summed up in a neat and tidy little sermon today. This theme of God's grace is woven all throughout Scripture from beginning to end, every single story. You could sing of it. You could preach on it. You could talk about it for the rest of your life, and you'll never, ever, ever reach the depths of it. It's amazing. And it's for you, and it's for me. So where are you at? Where are you at? Have you come to this place where you're just like, man, God, I need you. I know that I need you and I'm ready to run to you. And if that's you today, I just want to tell you, just come home. Just run home. There'll be some prayer team up here today. If you want to come just talk to somebody, they'll pray for you. They'll walk you through it, but just come home. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, Joe, I've been following Jesus and for you that means attending church. But your grace doesn't, Move me anymore and for if that's you today I would just encourage you to be honest with God and just be like God I've got complacent with your grace I've got complacent with the fact that you saved a sinner like me because church this has to be the driving force of our lives because if we don't understand what God did for us how are we going to lead people to that same gift or maybe you're full of pride today and you're still sitting there and, and the posture of your heart is just kind of like this. And I'm not listening. Maybe you're sitting at home on the couch. Maybe you're, you know, maybe your spouse drug you into the living room and you, you just, you don't even want to be here. And to you, I just say, man, I'm so glad you are. And maybe that, like that posture of your heart is just like, oh, I'm not listening. And I just want to tell you, man, when you're ready, when you're ready, Christ is going to be here with open arms because that's how good he is. And however long it takes, he's going to keep waiting for you to come home. But we've got to walk through that pride. We've got to walk through that desperation, walk through that repentance. And I would just say, hey, there's no reason to wait. You can come today. And so we're going to listen to this song before... Uh, Josiah comes and closes this out and shares some announcements with us today. And I just want to encourage you during this song. maybe this is your time to come home, to repent, to say, Jesus, I need your grace, to lay down your pride and just say, God, I want to follow you. Amen. Amen. Listen to this today.